what you are basically. Deep, deep down, far, far in, is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. Honestly expressing yourself. Hi everybody, welcome to the Parallel Mike podcast, episode number 34. Just me tonight, but I've got a packed episode for you, in which we're going to be delving deep into the rabbit hole on land ownership and the difference between a lodial title and feet simple, which is how most people today own property. And I say own, but as you're going to find out tonight, what we really have is a property held in trust for the crown. So I'm going to leave you on that teaser. So in part one, we're going to be going back in time to 1066, when the people of England suffered one of the greatest land grabs, or should I say worst land grabs, in human history. When a French duke captured the country and theft every man, woman and child off of their land, having declared himself absolute owner of all property, all land and all possessions, and which is precisely where the modern day form of ownership of land called fee simple derives from. Then as we progress through this story, we're going to uncover how a lodial title differs from fee simple and ask the question in part two, does anybody own their land outright today? And if so, is it possible for us to do the same? Well, that is what we're going to discuss in part two. So I'm going to leave it there for the introduction, everyone. I did want to mention also, we are beginning the first round of group coaching for investors and people looking to take control of their own and their family's wealth and protect it from all of the many risks moving forward. I think I'm one of the only people out there that are discussing many of these risks. I do coach people one-to-one, but I'm doing a group coaching. It's the first time and I'm extremely excited for that. But there are still some spaces left. So if you'd like to learn more, please look at the video in the description to this podcast. You can also check out parallelmike.com, the Telegram page for this podcast, or you can simply email me at parallelmikepodcast at protonmail.com to find out more information. In closing, thank you so much for listening. I hope you're all well, healthy, and reasonably happy. And as always, I will see you in the next one. William the Conqueror, or William the Bastard as he was privately known, was an illegitimate son of Robert I, Duke of Normandy, following an affair with a woman named Heliva. Having ascended to the dukedom in Normandy himself, William went on in 1066 to defeat the Anglo-Saxon King of England, Harold II, at the infamous Battle of Hastings. King Harold had literally only just taken the throne, given the prior king, Edward the Confessor, had died the same year and he left no heir. When William the Duke of Normandy saw the potential power vacuum in England, he decided to take his chance and invade the country. By this point, King Harold, also known as Harold Goodwinson, the Earl of Wessex, had been chosen as successor and was now king, but he was immediately in peril. 
The dispute over succession had left England in chaos. He had forces invading from the north in the form of King Harold III of Norway, who had also had a claim to the throne. And having repelled these forces in York, he immediately had an invasion to the south in the form of William the Bastard, soon to be crowned William the Conqueror when he defeats Harold at the Battle of Hastings just two weeks later on the 12th of September. During the battle, it is said that King Harold, just a few months into his short-lived reign, was killed via an arrow to the eye. In some accounts, we hear it was a spear to the chest, but what we do know is he not only died, but he was also dismembered into four pieces. Okay, so this is where our story on land ownership actually begins, with the sacking of England by a Vatican-sponsored French duke who had two historical titles, William the Bastard and William the Conqueror, and I will let listeners decide which one they might prefer, having heard the story I'm going to recount in tonight's episode. Now, of course, once the country had been conquered, the Normans faced many, many challenges in maintaining control. They were few in number, and the native population was far greater than they were, So it became a sort of sacking of the country where they went around land to land piece, trying to dispose people. There was lots of violence, lots of murders. And ultimately, it was one giant land grab that was ensuing. Now, when the Duke of Normandy came across to enact this, he brought along with him a lot of French aristocrats and their men too, promising them that if they aided and abetted him in this great crime, that he would give them large swaths of land in England and that's exactly what happened of course they first had to dispossess all of the people who already lived on that land and own that land outright which was the case in Anglo-Saxony England. People owned their land, they had their own homesteads and there was no superior authority to them on that land even the king himself. Now historians estimate the number of Norman landholders was around 8,000 to begin with. These were followers who expected to receive lands and titles in return for their service at the invasion. But William claimed ultimate possession of the land in England, over which his armies had given him de facto control. So he asserted the right to dispose of it as he saw fit, and henceforth all land was held directly by the king in feudal tenure in return for military service. So this is how it all began, but ultimately what we know about the Battle of Hastings is very sketchy, and historical records are actually pretty sparse on this one. One often cited historical document, which isn't actually a document at all, is called the Bayou Tapestry. While historical writings in the Bayou Tapestry tell us that there were many significant events leading up to the battle, the conflict on Senlac Hill was truly one of the defining moments in history. On that fateful day, almost 950 years ago, while estimates vary, it's believed around 7,000 Anglo-Saxon warriors and a roughly equal number of Norman invaders fought a day-long pitched battle for the Kingdom of England. In the end, Harold Goodwinson, the last Anglo-Saxon King of England, was dead, along with his two brothers and many members of the Anglo-Saxon nobility. William the Bastard, now William the Conqueror, had captured the crown. But it was a victory for more than just William. It was also a victory for the members of the Norman and Breton nobility who fought alongside William that day, those we call the Companions. For not only was the Norman royal dynasty founded, but the victory established many of William's companions as forefathers of the great noble families of medieval England. In a number of cases, their legacy would actually last much longer than the Norman royal line itself, which gave way to the Angevin and Plantagenet dynasty less than 100 years after the conquest. 
By way of contrast, some of the noble families established by the Companions would have great historical significance for hundreds of years to come. Okay, so the Bayou Tapestry is 70 meters long. It's an embroidered tapestry that depicts the events leading up to and including the 1066 Battle of Hastings. So that makes it an extremely important historical artifact. It is essentially a history book in tapestry form, which apparently has survived over nine centuries and remains when you look at it in almost pristine condition. There are 58 scenes depicted upon it, and you can see this online if you search for it. The colors are still very vibrant, and the condition looks unrealistically new in that it looks like it was made just a couple of years ago, and maybe it was. The earliest known written reference to the tapestry was a 1476 inventory of Bayou Cathedral, but its origins have been the subject of much speculation and controversy. French legend maintained that the tapestry was commissioned and created by Queen Matilda, William the Conqueror's wife, and her ladies-in-waiting, and in France it is sometimes referred to as Le Tapisserie de la Reine Mathilde, which is the tapestry of Queen Matilda. So you know, listeners, we have to be sceptical here. We have to be sceptical because whilst there are certainly records of a tapestry having existed, of course that says nothing about the authenticity of the one that they claim today is the original. It's important to understand that the 1066 invasion was essentially a reset moment in history. It was a great taking. It was exactly the situation which we're currently facing with many parallels to what's going on in the world today. Now, of course, we know from just our own lifetimes how history is falsified and rewritten to suit an agenda to legitimize the illegitimate for those at the top of the pyramid. So I see no reason why this wouldn't have happened with the Bayou Tapestry, given it is used even today as the basis for interpreting key supposed events that took place during what, to my mind, appears to have been a smash and grab on the people of England that sent them down the path to servitude and serfdom. Because remember, before the invasion of England by William the Conqueror, all English people owned their land absolutely. They owned it outright, the fabled allodial title or absolute ownership. And after William took the throne, this all ended. It was taken and it was replaced with a form of feudal tenure in which the king essentially declared himself absolute owner of everything and everyone else became a serf upon the land. And they had these feudal overlords now that they had to serve. So having invaded the country and defeated King Harold, William the Conqueror now set about surveying all of the land of England, which the crown now, through nothing but declaration made by fear and backed by, of course, tyranny, said they owned outright. This is where the infamous Doomsday Book comes from, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that in part two. But you can see why the Bayou Tapestry would be so important, because many of the new aristocracy also, who King William was about to grant large swaths of land to, were apparently recorded on the tapestry, so that historically they could be pointed out as the owners of the land, as people who had an entitlement to that land. But like I said prior to this, these English people had owned their lands outright. We was essentially a nation of homesteaders. But now, under the feudal system, the king was the only true owner of land. He was the only one with a lodial title, and thus he was ultimate overlord. And anyone else in the country who had enough clout or power or was associated with the king to actually have land, even they could only own land in tenure. So the king would still be absolute owner and they would have to provide for him in some way, usually in the form of taxes, and then also by offering their men for military campaigns to defend the lands of the country. So this is why much of England's history from here on out was this kind of toing and throwing between the aristocrats and the monarchs. 
because these aristocrats, of course, wanted to try and cement their rights to the land that they now had. So they would fight for things like the Magna Carta, for example, which was certainly not a document for people like you and I. It was for the noble men and noble women to try and get their land and make sure that they had complete rights to it. Of course, later there was the regicide of Charles I, which was something that the bankers were behind. They were always there in the shadows, including with William the Conqueror. He was funded by the banksters and the Vatican. Now, this is going to be important later on to our story, especially in part two, when we're going to the legal structures of land ownership. But before we leave this section, the other interesting thing to note is the date, 1066. Yes, the numbers are there, my friends, 1066. We had the conquering of England in 1066. And then in 1666, 1666, we had the Great Fire of London, which if you've listened to my episode on the City of London, you will know that this was certainly a false flag event. It took place in the City of London and it was used by the banksters to get the poor people out of the City of London and so that they could rebuild the city along sacred geometry. So very interesting thing. I'll do a separate episode all on the City of London. So look out for that one in the future. But the other huge thing that transpired out of the false flag great fire of the City of London was of course the Sestcuvet Act in 1666. Now bear with me on this one as it might be new to some of my listeners but this act was created to allow the crown to take all property and hold it in trust for the citizens who supposedly could no longer be traced and they were now missing according to the Sesquivet Act because of the Great Fire of London and the Plague of London that transpired the year before this in 1665. Another false flag in which a form of biological warfare was enacted on the populaces of the city of London in which trade ships coming down the Thames from Amsterdam which is where the central bank was already established and the banksters were residing they essentially sent the plague to the city of London through the Thames with items that were coming off the barges on the docks. And they used both of these events to justify enacting the Sestuvet Act in 1666, where they claimed that there were so many people who had gone missing that they had to take those properties and hold them in trust. Now, this is where it gets really murky because this was essentially the very first enacting of this kind of global maritime law trust system where nobody actually owns anything. They own it all in trust and we just get to use it, but it's not our property anymore. And that's what happened with the Sestuvet Act. And I'm just going to briefly read out what the Sestuvet Act, which lawyers often pronounce as Setike, actually says. Whereas diverse lords of manors and others have granted estates by lease for one or more lives or lives, or else for years determinable upon one more life or lives, and it hath often happened that such person or persons for whose life or lives such estates have been granted have gone beyond the seas, or so absented themselves for many years that the lessers and reversioners cannot find out whether such person or persons be alive or dead, by reason whereof such lessers and reversioners have been held out of possession of their tenements for many years, after all the lives upon which such estates depend are dead. In regard to the lessers and reversioners, when they have been brought actions for the recovery of their tenements, have been put upon to prove the death of their tenants when it is impossible for them to discover the same. For remedy of which, mischief so, frequently happening for such lessers or reversioners. If such person or persons for whose lives or lives such estates have been or shall be granted, 
as aforesaid shall remain beyond the seas or elsewhere absent in this realm by the space of seven years together and no sufficient and evident proof be made of the lives of such person or persons respectively in any action commenced for recovery of such tenements by the lessers or reversionaires. In every such case the person or persons upon whose life or life such a state depended shall be accounted as naturally dead. Okay, so what does that mean? <laughs> well, it essentially means that they could take that house, that dwelling, and they could put it into trust and the state could own it and they would own it. And they said that if somebody was missing for seven years, they would be classed as lost at sea. Now, this should be starting to sound a little bit familiar because we've been talking a little bit about maritime law, admiralty law, or sometimes called Roman law. Well, that's exactly what this is. The Sescuve Act essentially said that we are all lost at sea and therefore our property can be held in trust. And this is where the straw man was created that people often reference, where we're considered to be a corporation. This was how they started to do that. So they started to see us all as essentially dead and then they created a legal fictional structure, which is our name, often used in capital letters and we'd later get the birth certificate. But essentially this is where it come from and from this point on, they would treat us like a corporation and they would be also a corporation with superior rights to us. So they could put our items, our property in trust and they did this to ensure that we had no natural rights upon the land because a fictional or corporate entity cannot have any natural rights. Only a living man or a living woman who was created by our creator, God, can have natural rights and of course they understood this and they wanted to assert the original contract that was created between God and Adam and Eve that entitled them to the land, that entitled them to live upon the land free, unencumbered, without any debt and of course Jesus then paid our existential debt which came from the fall when Satan tried to assert our property rights for the first time, Jesus atoned for that. He paid the existential debt. So they then had to create this new system, this Roman law system to ensure that our natural rights were taken again. But of course they had to trick us into doing this. They had to trick us into foregoing our natural birthright and put us into this system, which they have managed to do. And now from birth, we are put into this corporate system and we actually reinforced the system unknowingly by registering our corporate identity many times throughout our life with the system itself. So it's very important to understand this one, but it's for another episode, so I'll just leave it there for this one on the Sesquivay Trust, but it's very important to understand that the corporate structure that we live in is false and that the original contract actually existed between God and man, not man and man. But you can see there is a definite continuum of property right destruction and a subverting of the legal system that we can trace back a thousand years. But as I said, this began in 1066 because that was the year that all land in England was taken by force and from that point on, the only level of ownership that a citizen could achieve was a feudal one, which today we call fee simple. Now, fee simple is a legal construct in which a person is granted usage rights over a piece of land, but the land is ultimately owned by another. This enables a person to be taxed for using the land, to have their land taken from them by the crown, which is exactly what happened. And this is where property taxes actually originate from, ladies and gentlemen. And that's why America would eventually go to war with Britain and the banksters, but today fee simple is how most people own their land and property. And I say own, but ultimately it's not ownership. If you live in a country like England or Australia, you do not own the property. You do not have a lodial title. You just have a form of tenureship that enables you to be on the land, but ultimately in a legal court that could be accepted at any point by the true owner of that land, 
the absolute owner, which of course is the Crown. Because as the Land Registry Act 2002 states in its explanatory notes in Section 4, the Crown is the only absolute owner of land in England and Wales. All others hold an estate in land. Estates, which derive from feudal terms of tenure, originally took many forms but were reduced by the Law of Property Act 1925 to 2. An estate in fee simple, absolute in possession, generally known as freehold, and an estate for a term of years absolute generally known as leasehold. Now this is precisely the reason why if you die in England and you do not have an heir for the court to pass your house onto, it gets sent back to the original owner, to the absolute owner, which of course is the crown. So your house will then become in possession of the crown and they can sell it and dispose of it how they wish because they are absolute owners. And all along, in truth, you was just a tenant. The house was held in trust for the crown. It's the same in Australia. Now, it just so happens that my sister is a partner in a property law firm and she says it is absolutely correct in the sense that every year she sends multiple properties back to the crown because no heir can be found. So that is exactly how it is working in practice. That is the legal structure. They are the absolute owner and that means that all land will revert back to them at some point. Of course, right now you are allowed to live in your house in Great Britain but at any point eminent domain can be enacted. You can be tapped out of that house theft off the land because you ultimately do not own it. Now of course that is why they are terrified of a lodial title and they ensure that you don't have it legally. You have this feudal system. Now they've done the same exact thing with securities. So behind our backs once more they've put us in this corporate system where we own nothing. They have absolute ownership over all of our stocks, our shares, our bonds and ergo meaning our property with a mortgage on it also and of course all of our pensions because our pensions are filled with stocks and bonds which they legally own so they keep reenacting this same scam but ultimately they want to get to absolute total control of everything you will own nothing and be happy that is the goal and they're even talking now about doing a physical asset register now a physical asset register would have every single physical item that you own in it as well They'd be turned into an NFT, put on the blockchain, and you would essentially be a glass house. Your gold, your artwork, cryptocurrency, anything that you own physically would also be put into a database, and you would be tracked, controlled, and all of those assets could be bought and sold without you even realizing it, because it exists somewhere else on this blockchain, and they could use that as collateral. And when they create a social credit system, they can apply fines and liens and debts to you and your life and then come and take those physical assets as collateral if you don't pay. So this is the goal, this is the ultimate control and electronic concentration camp that they're trying to build around us. So the Land Registry Act 2002 tells us exactly what is going on. Now this is also the case for all Crown colonies. So in Canada, 89% of the land is owned by the Crown. Australia, 100%. New Zealand, 100%. And of course, there's many islands that were conquered by the British and put into trust for the Crown. And of course, the Crown Corporation is managed by their CEO, which at present is the King or Queen of England. But who is behind them? Who truly owns the Crown? Because as we know, the monarchs of Europe, although powerful and possessing of this so-called royal blood, they themselves are not the true locus of power. As Mayor Amstel Rothschild said, I care not what puppet they put on the throne of England, the man who controls England is the man who controls the money supply and I am the man who controls the money supply. Now of course I don't believe a human being sits at the top of this hierarchy at all. I think it's a supernatural force 
I think it's an evil force. I think it's, in fact, some evil deity that these people worship and that they derive their earthly power from. But, of course, that can be accepted by the highest power there is, which is, of course, God. And we are told in the Bible by Jesus that the kingdom of God is within all of us. Therefore, we all have the power to defeat this evil. But all the while, we remain trapped in their system and help perpetuate it with our engagement with it. Of course, we cannot do that. We cannot see that we actually reinforce what is evil and what is wrong. And we do it unknowingly by our actions. And they work very, very hard to poison our mind, to poison our bodies, to ensure that we keep perpetuating their parasitical system. But of course, if we learn to leave it and we understand how, we can ensure that the parasite dies because it needs a host to exist. Now, if we accept that the banksters were behind the invasion of England with William the Conqueror, it should come as no surprise that there was a strange astrological event also in 1066 to coincide with the Norman conquest of England, and that was the arrival of Halley's Comet. Not long after, a comet portending, they say, a change in governments appeared, trailing its long flaming hair through the empty sky, concerning which there was a fine saying of a monk at our monastery called Athelamar. Crouching in terror at the sight of the gleaming star, You've come, haven't you? he said. You've come, you source of tears to many mothers. It is long since I saw you, but I see you now, and you are much more terrible, for I see you brandishing the downfall of my country. So calling it the long-haired star, which was seen by all as an extremely bad omen for the new king, Harold II, a prophecy which was of course fulfilled when William defeated and killed him at the Battle of Hastings, Halley's Comet was later included in a section of the Bayou Tapestry, which of course depicts King Harold and a crowd of fearful Englishmen watching it streak through the sky. So this astrological event was certainly seen as important and it is something we see throughout history and continuing to this very day in that major global events are timed to coincide with key astrological events and also specific dates and numbers. So in this instance, we've got not only the 1066 date, we've also got a key astrological event as well. Halley's Comet, Comet Halley, or sometimes simply Halley, officially designated 1P Halley, is a short period comet visible from Earth every 75 to 79 years. Halley is the only known short-term comet that is regularly visible to the naked eye from Earth, and thus the only naked eye comet that can appear twice in a human lifetime. It last appeared in 1986, and will next appear in mid-2061. And if we look back throughout history, many other major events have coincided with the reappearance of Halley's Comet, but I digress. So back to our narrative. So who was behind William the Conqueror? Well, one thing that I would point out is that despite literally sacking the entire country, and I'm talking ripping it piece to piece, dispossessing and killing thousands, when William rode into London, he didn't lay a single finger upon the city of London, which is of course the one mile square city-state on the River Thames that is the global centre of financial power for the banking oligarchy and it remains so to this very day. In fact, not only did he not disturb the city, he fortified it and ensured that it was protected further from any incursions from the so-called barbarians. He also ensured that their ancient rights and privileges were completely upheld in law, and this was done immediately, might I add, in 1067. It's called the William Charter, something I mentioned in my episode on the City of London, and clearly, this is a huge indicator of just what was actually taking place. This wasn't a noble French duke conquering a nation. 
This was a banking oligarchy sacking a nation to take all of the lands, with William I having been selected as their puppet monarch. The small piece of vellum, the William Charter, is the oldest document in the City of London's archive, given by King William the Conqueror to the city in 1067, soon after the Battle of Hastings but before he entered the City of London. It has been in the city's keeping continuously ever since. It measures just 6 inches by 1.5 with two slits, the larger one used as a sealed tongue and the other as a tie. The seal impression, although detached and imperfect, is one of the earliest surviving examples from William's reign. William the King friendly salutes William the Bishop and Godfrey the Portreeve, and all the burgesses within London both French and English, and I declare that I grant you to be all law-worthy, as you were in the days of King Edward, and I grant that every child shall be his father's heir after his father's days, and I will not suffer any person to do any of you wrong. God keep you. So in essence what William did here was just ensure the rights of the City of London to remain free and sovereign from the rest of England upon which he was about to enact this great taking. So he robbed everyone else of their lands, their farms, their cattle, their sheep, their goats, their forestry, their dwellings, but the City of London? No, they would remain outside of his jurisdiction permanently. Now that remains the case today, but it also remains the case today that we still do not own our land outright in Great Britain. So yes, the past really does matter on this one. According to the 19th century historian Edward Freeman, William the Conqueror, who was also known as William the Bastard, was sometimes known as William the Mamza. This is where things get interesting. Mamza is a Hebrew pejorative meaning the child of an illegitimate sexual relationship such as adultery or incest. It may have entered the vernacular as a pejorative for the offspring of a particular type of illegitimate relationship one between a Christian man and a Jewish woman. Furthermore, in medieval Europe, tanners were frequently Jews. We know that by the 11th century, Normandy was home to a large number of Jews. By some estimates, its capital Rouen began that century with a population that was one-fifth Jewish, and we know that William was relatively fond of the Jews. After his conquest, he suggested Normandy's children of Israel resettle in England. A surprising invitation, even for someone interested in developing trade and finance. And I have another quote here highlighting what is a key part of this narrative in that William was clearly working at the behest of the emerging banking oligarchs of Europe, who were of course represented by the Jews, who were utilised on account of their ability to enact usury, something that was a sin in Catholicism. The Norman Conquest prompted the arrival of Jews to England for the first time, William I needed to borrow money, large sums of money, to consolidate his power as the King of England, and he turned to the Jewish merchants of Rouen, Normandy, to provide him with this much needed income. Lending money with interest or usury was forbidden to Christians and considered a sin. As a result, the English king paved the way for Jewish individuals to migrate and settle across the channel. So I think those two things make it very clear the way he reacted upon arriving in England, particularly towards the City of London, writing them their ancient rights and charter and ensuring that nobody laid a finger upon them and then immediately after allowing the Jewish moneylenders to set up shop in England I think that tells us everything about who was behind William the Conqueror. So I'm going to leave the main narrative there for part one there's a lot to unpack in part two with the Doomsday Book which was also known as the Great Survey that's really interesting in and of itself and I could have done an episode just on that but just think about these terms the Great Survey, the Great Fleecing, the Great Taking, the Great Reset. 
These are all past but now also present and ongoing historical narratives in which the masses have their property and rights completely accept by the so-called elites. Following which they place themselves as overlords and everyone else in this serfdom. But let's call it what it is, it's slavery. And just think how different history would have been had the Anglo-Saxon English men and women retained their land rights and continued to live upon the land, free from indenture, no taxes, no mortgage. The ability for anyone to find some land and own it with a lodial title, meaning that they could have that land so long as they could defend it, it was theirs. And they could provide for themselves, growing their own food, harvesting their own wood from the vast forests that actually used to exist in England before the monarchs chopped them all down, living in communities. Just think how different the world would have been. How different history would have been. There would have been no Victorian mill in which children as young as two were being forced into slavery, along with their parents for family corporations owned by the very same aristocrats who had stolen the ancestral land of these peasants with William I in exchange for their allegiance and support back in 1066. Instead, what we've got today is this corporate structure, this Roman law system in which everything and everyone is subordinate to one parasitic faction at the very top. And they pay no taxes. They keep all of their wealth hidden today in offshore accounts. They have this family fondo which they pass on generation to generation, increasing with every single generation. No taxes are paid on it, no capital gains. They are systematically stripping the rest of society of their little wealth that is left, the crumbs that are left, having already robbed us of our ancestral lands. Alongside this, they have been twisting and turning the legal system towards Roman law, taking us further and further into this era of dead materialism in which they rule and we suffer. And along the way, they have further and further tightened the screw. They enacted Cesti Cave in 1666. Recently, we got put on a completely fiat standard in 1971. In 1973, they enacted the Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation, or DTC as it was known back then, which accepts of our property rights when it comes to securities. They dematerialized our shares and ensured that we only got a crappy security entitlement. So make no mistake, this is a long-term agenda. But it really does go back to 1066 in terms of land, particularly for English people. Today, a lodial title is still used as a term to refer to a concept in some systems of property law, where real property is owned free and clear of any superior landlord. It is free of any encumbrances. An encumbrance is a claim against a property by a party that is not the owner. An encumbrance can impact the transferability of a property and restrict its free use until the encumbrance is lifted. The most common type of encumbrances apply to real estate. These include mortgages, easements, and property tax liens. Historically, a lodial title was distinguished from property that was subject to a feudal relationship in which a person had subordinated ownership to the land they purchased, meaning the absolute ownership of the land was legally not with them. Today, a lodial title is often reserved for property held by governments and royalty. Outside of this, a lodial title is extremely rare. Fee simple ownership in common law jurisdictions is how most property today is held. On paper, fee simple is very similar to a lodial title in that it enables a person to claim ownership over the property and receive title on that property. Fee simple, however, is always a subordinated form of ownership. It is subject to the following provisions, taxation, eminent domain, state and local laws such as zoning and building codes, and of course, encumbrances such as mortgages or liens. Prior to the invasion of England, a lodial title is how all people owned their land. No taxes, no superior owner, 
just pure ownership of the land after it was serfdom and then later only fee simple which is how almost all land today is owned not just in Great Britain but across the world or put another way we don't actually own the land that our house sits upon. Now listeners if we add to this not owning our securities anymore not owning our bonds or our stocks then what really do we actually own? When we register our car it becomes the property of the state also so what do we actually own? Well, I would say we only own the physical assets that are not registered as part of their system. And in part two, we're going to be going deep into this topic of registration and the law and how registering our assets actually puts them in a system that allows our property rights to be accepted and how the aristocrats in England, the very same aristocrats who stole our ancestral lands, understood this. And they never actually registered their land when the Land Registry Act came in. They kept it within their family. They've never registered it, which is why 20% of all British land remains unregistered and out of the system. Now, this tells us something very important, that they understood the arc of history. They understood where this was going. They understood that we was eventually going to have our land and property accept from us all. And only those that were outside the system would survive that. And that, of course, is them. But make no mistake, this is all done with legal constructs. Therefore, we can learn the law ourselves and we can find ways out of their matrix. So we're going to talk about that in part two as well. And we're going to look at which countries actually still have a lodial title where we can get ourselves out of the system. And paired with other measures, we can start to try and detangle this mess and protect ourselves and our family's wealth from some great taking like event. Now, as I mentioned at the start of this episode, I am a specialist in wealth preservation. That's what I do privately. I'm a consultant. And normally I coach people one-to-one where I teach them the skills of wealth preservation, knowing everything I know about the system and about where it's heading. But over the past six months, I had a lot of my patrons ask me if I would consider doing a group course so I could lower the cost a little bit and have more people on board. And eventually I decided this was a good idea that I had time to do it. So I'm going to be doing a group coaching session. It's going to take place over three months. There's going to be 12 sessions in there, along with three dedicated workshops. And I'm going to be showing people exactly what I'm doing to protect my own wealth, how I'm protecting myself from things like the great taking, how I'm preserving my property rights, how I'm making sure that I do not have my assets taken from me and stripped in the next financial crises. And also, I'm going to be teaching people how to preserve their wealth ongoing and even increase it even during times of crises by showing them where the opportunities will be so they can get themselves prepared for it. And of course, not all of us can take all of our assets outside the system. Some people have pensions that are stuck in the system. So it makes sense to try and make the most of that and not allow that to be taken. I'll also be supporting people with things like predatory taxation and how to avoid it. And I can also announce as a exclusive announcement that we will also have Mr. David Rogers Webb, the author of The Great Taking, someone who is a hedge fund manager managing billions of dollars worth of assets. He will be joining us for one of those special workshops to talk all about how we protect ourselves from The Great Taking alongside myself. So that's something exclusive for coaching clients. You're not going to find that anywhere else. So if this sounds like something you'd like to be a part of, you can check out the link in the description to a video where you can learn more information. The video is also shared in my Telegram group, the link to which is on my website. Or you can simply email me at parallelmikepodcast at protonmail.com to ask for more information and I'll point you in the right direction. So we're going to leave it there for part one. We've got so much more to cover in part two. I think you're going to find this one extremely interesting if you're a member. If you're not a member and you'd like to become one, please head over to parallelmite.com where you can sign up. Annual membership is one month for free. And in part two, we're going to be going much deeper into a lodial title, but we're going to begin with the infamous Doomsday Book. So members, please head over to the website and I'll see you in there. Everyone else, thank you so much for listening. 
Hope you're all well, healthy and happy. I'll see you all in the next one. What you are basic. Deep, deep down, far, far in, is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. Honestly expressing yourself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. The fabric and structure of existence. Not really peace in our time, peace in all time.